Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to the Australian robotics and AI community. Today, however, I'm going a little bit further afield. I'd like to introduce you to Assistant Professor Ray L.C. Ray explores our own stories about the way we adapt to technologies. His interdisciplinary art, design, science practice creates interactions and narrative environments for building bonds between humans and machines. He also just happens to have a PhD in neuroscience. Ray, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Nikki. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. It's my great pleasure. You're an assistant professor at City University of Hong Kong. You have lived and taught in the USA as well um, as now collaborating in Europe. Viewed from this lens, what are the differences in adoption of technology across the world? Um, yeah, it's really interesting to see the different lenses that people take um, uh, about technology and about uh, robotics, etc. Um, you know, for example, um, uh, when I first uh, kind of learned about podcasting in general, really, um, I basically was involved with uh, Damith um, at uh, Australia, basically. So he was editing a volume um, basically about academic research in the robotics and arts. And basically I, I learned from him and I also um, saw his work. Um, and then he brought me along and invited me to write a paper. I was pretty new researcher at the time. So I was super appreciative of the opportunity to actually bring robotics arts into like academia, really. Um, so that's how I really got started on that path. And then uh, because of that, I actually saw, oh, wait, uh, Australia, you guys are doing a lot of robotics, right? Like, so, you know, that was kind of like, I kind of just chanced upon that. And at the time I was actually, I had a mentor um, also in New York at Parsons where, where I was still finishing my MFA uh, by the name of Carla Diana. Uh, and she basically introduced me to a different opportunities too. And I went really from that area into you know, kind of like the robotics research area into more of the arts and design research. So that's how I kind of was bridging, you know, those two main areas. Um, and to see basically how uh, people across the world are doing different things differently, it's really interesting. So for example, um, you know, in Hong Kong, there's a lot of focus on uh, human computer interaction. So human robot interaction in our lab, for instance. Uh, but there's also other places which are, you know, for example, in Europe, it's quite artsy here. They can get a lot of funding from the arts development side of things. Um, I was just visiting uh, collaborators here as well who are doing, you know, architecture and space and robotics. Um, and so they, they kind of, you know, have a lot of exploration of the artsy side. And then with folks at Australia, I can also sense that uh, type of development with Davith and, and others. Um, so it's really interesting to see how, you know, the different you know, parts of the world are, are looking at things differently. Um, and in particular in Hong Kong, actually, there's a lot of development of robotics as well. You guys might know of the Sophia, the, you know, the first world citizen, quote unquote, that was, <laughs> that was developed in, in Hong Kong. And there's a lot of myth and, you know, things about that as well. But there's also some funding into this kind of really 
like hardcore research side, but a little bit less on what we're doing, which is what we're trying to popularize, this kind of artsy side, design practice side. So just for our audience, um, you're of course referring to Professor Damoth Heroth that lives here in Australia that you, uh, you're mentioning here. And um, Damoth was a, a guest on my podcast previously, and he's actually released a book now, I think, which is available in PDF format, which I don't actually have the title for now, but just uh, to just put the correlation of who you're talking about there. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. He is. He's absolutely phenomenal. He's very, um, yes, he's just very lovely, very generous human being. Yeah, fun podcast as well. I heard, I listened to that as well. Yeah, no, no it was absolute, um, absolutely amazing to speak to. So how did you arrive at such an interdisciplinary practice that crosses across the, that crosses the boundaries between art and science? And who do you work with? Yeah, it, it's a complicated question because when I asked, uh, when I get asked about it, um, uh, people are usually looking at like kind of my CV, right? Like they look at, well, you do have a PhD in neuroscience, but you're really doing arts and design with robots, right? And, and machine learning. Um, so I would say like, uh, it's not what it seems. Like to me, the journey is actually quite natural and makes sense. Like, you know, going here and going there, it's just following my instincts, following where the roads of discovery leads. Uh, but the outcome seems really uh, disparate. Um, but I, I think I have to say, actually, it starts in, in high school, basically. I had a, uh, in, in the U.S., I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, in the U.S., they have this um, AP classes, which is advanced placement that you can get uh, college credit even in, in high school. And to be honest, we have what, we had like some really good classes. We also had a really bad psychology class where, uh, you know, the person who was teaching wasn't really teaching much. They just let us sit in the classroom and basically talk amongst ourselves. Uh, but in that class is the one I realized that, oh, wait a minute, um, I'm actually gonna take this AP test that nobody else in the class is taking uh, because I just love the material so much. And I would sit with the textbook and kind of read it on my own and then go home and check out other textbook from the public library system. Um, that's when I realized, you know, when you find something basically where you don't have to get pushed to do it and you just like self-motivated to do it, um, you know, the, that's what I found. It was in psychology, actually, so psychology and neuroscience. Um, so that's where I realized like, um, you know, physics has a really good understanding of, you know, particles and atoms around the world, right, like outside of us. But the thing that's inside of us is is the one that's really uh, interesting and and not unexplored, relatively speaking, right? There's like a whole universe inside each single one of us. So if you multiply that by, you know, the billions of people on this earth, you have a lot of universes. So that's that was kind of my thinking was like, well, you have one big universe and then you have these multiplicity of universes that you can explore over time and space and history and the memories. Um, so that's when I decided to study neuroscience really. And then, in terms of how it kind of got into this arts and design practice, uh, basically I was in uh, Japan in Uriken working at a, a really cool lab that does these really fundamental neuroscience research with advanced technologies, uh, basically. Uh, but then I realized I was doing basically like uh, animal surgeries, like you know, every day. You know, <laughs> I did like probably two hundred animals for that Nature Communications paper, and then I realized that I didn't. It wasn't connected to the human side as much, you know, back to 
my thoughts about, you know, when I was sitting in that AP class, right? Like I was connected to human beings at that moment. And then I thought, well, I don't want to just do kind of lab work that takes, you know, years to go into clinical trial. And, and, you know, I was working on dopamine, you know, but, you know, that was like a really long road to actually see outcomes connected to humans, right? And, and so therefore, I wanted to actually, uh, it was a funny story, but I was actually uh, trying to find a way kind of to study in the evening so that I can try to like see if how my work can be connected to humans, you know, basically. And then I was in Tokyo at the time and I was like, well, you know, what's good at Japan? And then they're good at fashion design. So I actually was like doing kind of like side classes in the evening in fashion design. Um, but uh, this fashion design work, the final kind of piece was actually, I basically had the idea of using kind of like making clothing that was um, responsive to AI and computer vision. It was kind of designed for like future technology. So for example, it had particular markers and patterns and it kind of fits people a particular way in order for the cameras to see us, you know, that kind of, you know, crazy idea. But of course, very aesthetically driven. Um, so because of that work, I actually uh, used that work basically to apply to Parsons at um, at uh, New York, basically, which is like really super known for fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, when I got to uh, Parsons, I realized I didn't just want to do fashion. I wanted to kind of explore uh, design and technology in general. So that's where I've been since then, actually, since the MFA. And then, of course, then I graduated and did a uh, visiting professor in Northeastern and then at the, the Hong Kong right now. So I guess, you know, five, six years ago, basically, when I started on this kind of arts and design path, and then I'm, I've been on it ever since because, you know, it's the same thing as that high school story. I realized I don't have to try to do tons of work. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm working all the time, basically, as you know, like academics, right? So I'm, I'm laughing at your story that you went to the library and you actually got all these books. I mean, like for all the, the students out there, they're going, what do you mean there's a library? There are books in there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the Hacienda Heights Public Library. <laughs> And uh, at the time, it's open all the time. Yeah. And then I had to look for really, you know, there's not that many great books available. You know, they're pretty basic psychology textbooks. I, I had to find basically the most advanced level, check it out, and then I basically renew it all the time. I remember returning it to the library. And then in the same day, when they shelved the book, I would check it out again. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just give me an extension here. You're not getting the book back. <laughs> so yeah, us, exactly. Tell us, how have you applied neuroscience thinking into your work? Yeah, that's also a great question because like, you know, neuroscience actually, to me, it's one of those things, you know, what I'm studying as well. Our, our studio is called Studio for Narrative Spaces. And, and it's the same question, right? It's like kind of space and neuroscience. Like, how do you apply those things to what we're doing? But I would have to say, like, it's actually interesting, but I actually don't have to apply any of it. Um, uh, the reason is because the neuroscience education I got, it's all ingrained in the way I think, basically. So every topic, uh, including in the arts, uh, including in the you know VR, interaction studies, et cetera, 
I always think about it from how does it affects humans understanding and how humans interpret these um, uh, concepts, motivations, et cetera, you know, first, right? Um, you know, for example, there's a, a project about um, using VR to help people with stuttering and speech and anxiety. That's very neuroscience driven because we're thinking about it. Okay, how to help people in this particular way, how they're affected by this, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also artworks where we actually just take from kind of the human neuroscience perspective as well. Um, just give another example. We have another work uh, in VR where we use, we, we transform um, the idea of listening to a piece of music temporally into a spatial you know, way of experiencing it. So this work is called Sound Off. It was published last year. So what we did with this was basically we, you know, when you're listening to like a Beethoven symphony, for example, you're listening to, you know, 90 minutes of sustain, you know, from one section to the next. But what you realize is actually, actually from neuroscience really, is that people are not paying attention to the whole piece, basically. They're listening to bits and pieces of it and, you know, they remember, da -da -da -da, and then maybe when da -da -da comes back, like, you know, five minutes later. Yeah. Um, so what we thought was, why don't we create a new experience for people? So what we take, we do is we take that whole piece, we chop it up into little five, six sec second uh, segments. And then we use machine learning, uh, this algorithm for it called Tizni, that basically puts like features that are close to each other. We, they, they put the pieces that have the features that are close to each other together. So for example, you have da 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 da, you have da 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 da. So those two are kind of close to each other uh, in terms of audio. Uh, if there's a piano part, there's another piano part. Those two piano parts are close to each other. There's the trumpet parts are close to each other. But the interesting th thing now is that there's actually algorithms to put this into 3D space, basically. So instead of putting it into 2D space, we put it into 3D space, and then we allow the people to basically turn their head or use their controller to actually explore the musical landscape, not by listening to different parts of the segment, but actually to use the spatial affordances to allow them to explore. So in this study is quite interesting because um, first of all, they, you know, as soon as you put people in the headset, they were like, oh, I'm just listening to whatever. And then you give them five minutes and they're like, oh, wait, so this is, <laughs> you know, they, they, they basically have new interactions um, yeah. that kind of expands their horizon of, of listening and what it means to listen. And Interestingly, if it's a piece that they're familiar with, they very quickly get accustomed to it, right? They know the piece already because every piece reminds them of a piece that they know basically from that sound. And if it's a piece that they don't know super well, then they're still exploring it because they, they kind of like are trying to see where the related parts can lead them to basically. So in either way, you know, we're basically you know, try to use the human understanding and human perception in, in that whole process. Uh, and in this particular way, uh, we create interactions that are new, and then we study how people interact with this new technology. 
I'm relating to your comment about, you know, when you listen to a piece of music, because I, I just immediately, I was guilty of that. I'd start to go, no, 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 no. And I'm going, I'm listening, oh, beautiful. And then, you know, and you're listening, you go, oh, this is just so lovely. I'm in rapture. And then off my thoughts go. And then I come back a few minutes later, I go, where's that piece of music gone? That's really funny. And I suppose with an experience like that, you're firing off new neurons and you're creating new neurons because your brain is evolving and you're teaching it something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, that's a great insight. So so from the neurosciences, basically, there's a lot of things we know. And, and, and I have to say, I don't like, so sometimes students ask me, you know, as budding researchers about, okay, like, how do you know all this stuff from neuroscience? And I don't really have to. So there's kind of two ways, you know, to kind of address your question a little bit more depth is one, it's basically when you do a PhD, you really explore the way of thinking of that medium, you know, of that medium, right? It's like, how do you run the experiment? What's good research? Uh, I can look at a paper, I can look at two or three papers and I can f- re- figure out, okay, this paper is good. Like they got stuff all worked out. And th- this other paper is like, you know, if I was a reviewer, I would have these, these, and these issues, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is the same kind of idea in the different communities. The neuroscience communities is, is quite scientific. It's not the same way as HCI or you know, human computer interaction or art and design because it's not the, you know, the level rigor is different. They get, they publish in different places. They do journals instead of conferences, you know, all those little things add up. But that's one thing. That's just the PhD and the knowledge side and knowing the literature and knowing how it evolves, you know, being on the email list still, yeah. you know. But the other side, I have to say, is probably more important is because the my friends and colleagues in neuroscience, mm-hmm. uh, that's really important. I can just like email, email them or, or Facebook chat or whatever chat we do with them and ask them a really stupid question probably from the arts and design kind of HCI level. And they'll be like, well, you know, from the neuroscience perspective, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Right. So for example, in the, in the sound off work, um, we know people don't pay attention to the whole musical piece. Right. So I asked psychologists, you know, I asked collaborators, uh, city U as well, but in Japan as well, you know, about attentional processes and how attentions wax and wane, except for example, right. right? I mean, I don't even work on, attention, but I know enough about the literature because of this conversations I have to now figure out, okay, here are some things that we can do to address these types of issues from the kind of neuroscience psychology perspective. I speak to a lot of professors and lecturers, and this is a common theme that sometimes comes up is their students' lack of attention. And they actually are now finding that doing online um co-teaching that they actually have to break it up into segments for them to actually master complex um, concepts because the students just can't cope with it. I don't know if you find the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, during the whole coronavirus times that these are things that become magnified, just like, as you said. Um, uh, And in, in fact, in the human robotics interaction and human computer interaction literature, you know, those are some of the things that we explore. For example, in video chat, uh, we also study like uh, performers, how they interact with technology and robotics, um, you know, basically this during this corona time. And it's because of this time, people realize, okay, if you have to do things online and there's a, only a certain area of kind of attention 
and sometimes too much attention all over the screen for you, it changes the way you operate with technology. Um, it's not just, you know, looking at people on a screen is not the same, basically. You know, in, in our CSCW work with that performers and, and robots and technology study, that's what people find, for example, is that um, when they're on Zoom, performing for Zoom, they feel like they're performing for a movie. So it's like a movie set because, well, first of all, you can block out anything you don't want, right? Because you can't see what's like on this yeah. other side of my chamber right now, you know? Um, I can also put on avatars, you know, I can do all kinds of interesting things to hide the dynamics. So the, 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 the whole setup is kind of a director's setup. It's all kind of ready for you. Um, but uh, as, as you said, in the online education uh, medium, uh, when you're trying to teach online, then it becomes magnified because there's so much attention that has to be spent on you know, seeing what people are trying to do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the way that, for example, Zoom and other types of software puts us in kind of in particular spatial areas in the screen that don't that we don't naturally belong to, um, that causes all kinds of really confusion for the students. And they have to be kind of, I mean, to be honest, they have to acquire new skills, basically, in this new medium. Yeah. You have to acquire new skills to make it work for this particular medium. Yeah. And I think the interesting, and we'll close off on the Zoom discussion here, is just that um, I found after doing a couple of consecutive, I was exhausted. Like, And you would think this is so easy to sit and talk on Zoom, but initially to get that robustness and that um, just that experience and whatever you want to call it. But initially, like I was really, really tired. So tell us, what are some things that humans do fundamentally that can be designed for and also studied? Uh, well, you know, humans do a lot of different things. Um, I would say that, yeah, it's a very broad, it's really cool, by the way, the, the question is addressed to kind of make it a very broad topic, because I think that's the areas that um, needs to be addressed in terms of bridging the different disciplines together, right? Like, you know, because right now there's a lot of focus I, I see in the world of, of like narrowing on some very specific niche. Um, and so it's kind of nice to kind of bring it all together to see, wow, how can those disciplines all um, can be bring to be brought together? Um, so, I mean, fundamentally speaking, I think uh, some really interesting things that we've been working on, but uh, others that have as well, is basically when there's new technologies happening, uh, what do people do, you know, to them, right? Like, what do people do to interact with them, to adapt to them, for example? And for example, there's some really obvious ones right now, right? ChatGPT, right? It's really hot. It's really going, you know, Basically, everybody has to know about them. And you can already see some really interesting interactions. Um, for example, there's people who fear it, right? So that's something that can be studied, by the way. Uh, some universities fear it. They ban it so that the uh, students cannot use it. Of course, psychologically speaking, that's the last thing you want to do. As soon as you ban it, people were like, whoa, shit, what is that, what is that thing that they banned? Like, I got to try it, right? Um, and then there's also um, things people do with that technology that's also really interesting. They adapt to it. For example, we were one of the earlier people to study the GPT stuff already because we were doing it for poetry and generating, uh, 
you know, creative content. So one of our, my earlier paper was about basically how people uh, can write like a story together with GPT. So this is back in GPT-2. So it's kind of old. I mean, actually it's not that old. It's only like last year, but it's like in the, in the machine learning world, that's like, you know, ancient Roman. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Roman era, pre pre AD, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so we actually looked at and and allow people to we, we create an interface that allow people to edit the text, summarize the text that that the machine learning generates, uh, regenerate the text, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, basically work with the text that they get back in order to keep going on their story. So it's kind of a collaborative storytelling paradigm so the machine would say something and the the human would keep going or not and the machine would say something and the human would keep going interestingly actually in that study uh you know of all the different interaction styles they want to regenerate the most right they don't even like edit and summarize that much uh they just gonna if they see something the machine generates that's not relevant not not good etc etc they just keep hitting the regenerate button, right? So, so yeah, until they see something they like and then they keep going, right? Um, so, so, so these are the interesting things that people do with new technology. I think this is the thing that I'm really fascinated with right now um, is the way that people interact in, in new spaces and new technologies. Um, yeah, I, I know we didn't get to talk as much. Um, you know, our studio is called Studio for Narrative Spaces. But basically, we study that way we interact with machines and technologies in spaces and how spaces affects that, those types of interactions. Um, I haven't talked about as much yet about the spatial dynamics, but actually, there's a lot of psychology in, in this area and neuroscience in this area uh, that suggests that basically space is something that affects everything that we do, basically. Uh, if you're in a small home versus a big home, that actually unconsciously affects how you express yourself, how creative you are, how well you interact with others. Uh, things like anger management is affected by that. So the other interesting thing is that it's another thing that we don't like like specifically know. Like we, we don't um, explicitly know how the space is affecting us. But if we're in a, we don't have a good way to understand how the specific ways of explicitly affecting us, the space uh, show dynamics. So what that means is that um, uh, as, as the neuroscience uh, you know, literature can show basically, is that um, the way that the space affects us is actually through these implicit means, basically. Um, over time, things accumulate. For example, if you're in quarantine uh, all the time, well, at least you don't, like, first, you don't feel like it's a problem for you, right? like, per se. Well, oh, you're doing this and you're doing that. But actually, it's affecting your neural circuits all the time, basically. You're being constrained in particular ways, fear and anxiety and all those things they accumulate over time. And these spatial dynamics are not explicit to us. I think this is the really the key thing that we want to study. If, you, if it's not explicit and known to humans, you definitely want to study that because you want to make it known to people how it can affect them so they can avoid particular situations or they want to adapt themselves to better situations that have you know beautiful spaces with lots of attention, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think this is the thing that we've been really 
accumulating our effort um, is to look at those interactions uh, with technology, uh, with um, uh, machines, but in the context of how they're affected by spaces and how it, it kind of insidiously affects us as well, because it's not known as, a, as much to us how they affect us. It's a fascinating subject. And I know we can go down a rabbit hole here. I'm just thinking of a quick article that I read about new buildings that were built here in um, Australia and that they actually designed larger corridors so that when people pass each other, that there's not this sense of, um, you know, especially if you're a single woman, that you're threatened by someone that's coming too close in your space. And of course, I mean, we all recognize that if you live in a high rise building and they aren't actually Sitting, there's nature that you can go and walk around and you know sit out there. Of course, it's going to affect you. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of uh, things like what you were just saying is that they subconsciously affect you, and you know most of the time it's okay because you know we have laws and you know other things about that, you know, regulations about that in you know online etc. That says you can or cannot do this, right? As as other subtle ways of affecting you. But basically the psychology influence is basically all about this. It's about how people like salesmen and others try to kind of like get you to do this by giving you just a little bit and they kind of sell you this next thing. So the space is kind of like that basically because the space is not clear what the architecture design intentions were, but actually there was some, you know, kind of authoritarian kind of regime that was saying like, well, you should do it this way so that we can keep all the people like this, or, or we can keep, I mean, some of them is good, by the way, they're not like yeah. bad things, you know, yeah. public safety, for example, right? Like you want to keep things separate in particular ways are actually quite effective strategies that uses space design or how to create bigger spaces to allow people to express their creativity, right? What, you know, the stage has to be big and lots of sunlight coming in in order for them to have these you know, optimally creative spaces, for example. Those are good, but then there's also a lot of things that are not good. And so therefore, you know, allowing the, the research to tell the general public about you know, these, the way that these interactions work would be really interesting because most people, don't, they don't have a real grasp, a knowledge of the way that of the space affects them. A little bit what developments in robotics and AI um, becoming crucial in the future? Um, well, you know, I talked a lot about, about the kind of the spatial and the different interactions. So, but basically, I think one of the main thing right now is, as, as we discussed a little bit before, is the whole chat GPT and machine learning, right? It's a new technology that's becoming viral right now so that everybody's known about it. That hasn't really happened before. Even with neural networks and you know, GANs and generative AI, it wasn't quite hot as it is now where like you know, our grandparents know about ChatGPT, right? Um, but I think one of the things that would be really interesting to me is the study in identity. So what I mean by identity is Actually, in this kind of uh, robotics and, and AI world, there's actually some really interesting uh, research um, that looks at how people interpret these technologies if they think that the technology has a human behind it or is machine, basically. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you make a chatbot and you, sh you, know, you have people talk to the chatbot, 
if they know that the chatbot it has a human behind it, then when you put a human face on the chatbot, they positively interpret that. They say, well, that's a better, you know, it's a better looking chatbot. You know, it's, I have better interactions. If they know that chatbot is actually AI, you know, one of those like kind of Siri type of things, like when you go on online banking, they say yeah. like, may I help you? Yeah. <laughs> if you put a human face to that, people are really good. They, they, go, they go like basically, oh, that's not human. You're trying to like subvert me. Like you're trying to, you know, pretend like you're human. And so that's actually gets negatively interpreted. So what that means is unlike like interactions with other people, the other the interactions with technology, the identity behind that technology becomes really important to people. Like they have to trust and actually trust is a huge issue in, in human robotic interaction, you, you might know. And the trust that people build with uh, these technologies, these robots are really affected by what they think is behind the robot, basically. You know, is it really a human behind it or is it actually a technology created by humans to do particular things? And immediately the way you try to fix and change those things by putting you know, emojis, et cetera, et cetera, actually affects how they interact with that. And actually it affects how well they interact with it as well, you know, those technologies, how well they collaborate with them, how uh, how they, you know, one of the things we study, for example, is how these types of technology, when, when they're too busy to serve you, you can actually interpret that as rejection, for example, if, if the robot is kind of like human enough. So those are the kind of things that are uh, really important, I think, over the next part of this journey that you know this human species is on we have a lot of technologies we have human uh, we have ai we have robotics but then how does the interaction work how do people interpret that psychologically how did they how do these technologies get you know adapt and change in the future due to these issues like trust and identity i think that's where the next step will be well you know talk about trust if you're talking about scams that are going around or phone calls or voice um, impersonation of mom, mom, help me. And then you get this voice saying, um, I've got your daughter and please deposit the money. I mean, my kids sent me a video on this and we decided we immediately needed to establish a safe word because if you wanted to clone my voice, you don't even have to do that. You just go to my podcast and there are 112 episodes for you to use whatever book you want to, you know, whatever book I'm going to tell you. So I think this is increasingly going to become a problem for us because technology of course, it's good. And there's, of course, a lot of people using this as opportunity for bad. And um, I, I do, I do worry for my older friends, I always warn them, don't, you know, if you don't recognize the number, don't answer the phone, you know, they can leave a message if they need to get you. Um, anyone that's phoning you from a bank, do not believe them, you know, like, I, I find myself getting slightly increasingly paranoia about the world we live in because I you know I listen to a lot of this I read about it and I wonder do the rest of the people um, that have you know they're not necessarily involved in AI and robotics you know are they even slightly aware of this and I I have to probably think now in Australia because I was reading an article on a scammer um, that's really scammed a lot of people in Australia and I've actually got an article here like I can just quickly give you some figures around it. Investment scams in Australia, $1.5 billion. Remote access, $229 million. So people saying, can I have access to your computer? No, no, no. 
writing and romance, $220 million being scammed out, phishing, false emails, text message, $158 million. You know, like you, um, as the scammer said, that you said the Australians are the stupidest people in the world. It's because we, we're very trusting and, you know, we can't believe that there can be such bad people in the world trying to scam us out of our money. Like, the, <laughs> anyway, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but to your point, trust is crucial for us to go forward. And even as far as anything that you read on the internet, you want to be able to verify that this is actually an accurate account of what's happened. Talk about chat GTP for, um, a colleague of mine was saying she actually asked it something and it came back with some answer. She actually checked it and was completely wrong. You know, so we like to think everything, but I think the onus is on us to check everything. Yeah, for sure. I mean, these concerns that you're saying is like, yeah, for the future, there's a really uh, big time. I think I think that the kind of two sides to kind of a to address these things. One is basically, you know, what do we as human beings want our governments to do or want our institutions to do to support us, right? And I think the designs can be helpful in this regard, basically, right? Like they should give us particular types of affordances so that we know when they're trying to do this, you know. For example, even the spam filter is quite simple but effective, right? Like you know that it's being categorized as a particular way, so you should check it, right? So it's at least there's something there for you to now pay attention to. I think the other side of thing, and this would be this might sound very radical to you and others when I when I say it in this way, but from the neuroscience perspective, I can also say that actually it's also that something we have to adapt to, basically. So what I mean is people are really good to adapting to new technologies and situations. So the fact that you will be hit by these scams or you will be, you know, like, you know, be emailed by the, the prince of an African country, after a while you learn basically to adapt to that scam, but you're not generalizing to other scams yet, right? Mm. But over time and over history, basically human beings will get really good at adapting to this thing, basically. Their circuits will be good at, recognizing these types of phenomenon and they will adapt basically. And so I think that's the other thing that we want to enable, like how to let people adapt. So, you know, don't worry about making the technology. I mean, that's part of it, of course, what I said, you know, making the technology to help people with that, but also how do we foster the learning to allow people to figure these things out or let them to use tools to figure these things out. I think that's also really good because people are still the really the best learners of these uh, these types of uh, issues. Um, I know I know machine learning and AI is really good right now, but it's really good right now because it's working in our domain. It's actually not that great. I mean, I, I work on machine learning, so I can kind of tell you a little bit, yeah. but it's actually still quite rigid in what it does. But the reason we're, we're interpreting now ChatGPT being really good at it is because the, the, the same types of, you know, big neural networks models are being applied to, in an area in uh, natural language processing that is so close to what humans do with our own language that they look really human to us. Mm. So it's really the same technology, but it's so close to our domain that we're interpreting that as being very human. But in effect, it's still the same learning statistical model. 
like what it's actually basically trying to do is still like kind of really high school statistics, mm. but because it does it in such a huge scale with lots and lots of the data, we interpret that as really like something new. And we assign humanness to this, this whole interaction so that we trust the robot in particular ways or distrust the robot in particular ways because it has this really human property. But I think that's something we need to kind of really educate ourselves uh, as a human species uh, what these tools really are. Yeah, I agree with you. And um, I'll try and have a slightly more positive disposition about it. <laughs> Talk to us about how such diverse practices are maintained at your studio, academic, research, and teaching. Oh, yeah, I think, yeah, these are, so having talked about all the research and stuff like that, I think, you know, in, in practicality in the lab, you know, this is really interesting as well. You know, I, uh, that's something that comes across it in your podcast as well, the way the different um, uh, researchers, academics, et cetera, uh, work with their own flow right, or company folks. Um, and then, so our, our lab is actually really interesting because well, we're in Hong Kong, so it's, kind of a diverse international place. It's kind of a junction between kind of China and US in some ways. I know there's some conflict between those two, but but actually we're in a very unique position where there's a lot of diverse people who come across. And for me personally, I come across a lot of diverse people. You know, I work with performers and architects and dancers and et cetera, et cetera. And we don't judge them. We just bring them and say, I'm so curious about what you do. Like, you know, tell us about what you do. I mean, it's a very simple strategy, uh, but it works, right, when you're curious. Actually, same thing with this podcast. I was, oh, wow, this podcast is really cool. I want to know what you do. <laughs> That's how, yeah. you know, we met, right? Yeah. And and so and so, so we maintain that type of thinking in our lab. Um, now, in terms of, you know, PhD students who come in and you know, researchers and RAs and things like that, um, we, we try to foster that, but of course there's kind of like real specific things that they have to do, right? Like they want to publish papers and they want to, uh, you know, do different types of, you know, uh, academic work. But I think one interesting thing that we do do that maybe not as many people do um, or that, that other people say they do, but they don't actually do is this interdisciplinary practice where someone in the lab you know, exhibit something in, in, in a gallery, exhibition space, et cetera, or design something like a book, et cetera, but also uses that artifact as part of their research and use that research to tell us how we can understand, you know, human and technology, for example. I think that's something that's really um, um, still missing a little bit. You know, there are certain institutions in the world, um, you know, Media Lab, KO, for example, that foster these type of interactions, sometimes more between faculty as opposed to within a particular faculty. But what we try to do basically, we wanna say is basically, it doesn't actually matter uh, what you make. You know, It could be a paper, it could be an experiment, it could be a, a, a art installation, it could be, actually it could be anything. You know, If you come up with a new public holiday, that's something. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. It could be anything really that you want to make an impact in this world. It could be a podcast, actually. Yeah. We apply for funding for a podcast. So exactly and, the same. And how, right? how's that going? Have you have you got the funding? Well, we, we don't know yet, but um, you know, we're working on it. But our idea is really good and it's about mm -hmm. speculative design and like playing games when you're doing your podcast. So I think I think it's it's 
you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But we, we like the project anyway, so it, it kind of doesn't matter. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's the other thing. Um, um, speaking about this is that um, not only does it matter like what they're doing, you know, they just pick the right tool for what they want to express. You know, be it an installation or be it a paper. But the other thing is that actually it doesn't really matter that they're publishing a paper or getting the funding. I mean, I have to say, like this is also something that um, a lot of people struggle with. A lot of researchers are like, okay, we have to get this funding in order to get tenured, or we have to get publish this paper so that people, you know, they get the notoriety that comes from it. But I always tell my students and, and, and others, you know, collaborators that actually that will come. You just want to do the best work. Mm. You know, you just want to do the most interesting, beautiful, amazing work. And it doesn't even matter which area you want to do it in, in terms yeah. of the ultimate, ultimate dissemination. Because if that's good, someone in the world will recognize it and it will get published. It might not be published in nature or science, but maybe it will get published in CHI or HRI. You know, it really doesn't at the end matter. If you have the passion and motivation to do it, as Nikki, that you do in your podcast as well, people will hear it and people will like it and people will fall in love with it. And actually, it's even the better way to do it because the people who fall in love with it and like it is the people you want to attract. Like yeah. you don't even care to satisfy those other reviewers who doesn't like this work. You just want to actually interact with the community that love this work anyways. So it's, so that's kind of my thinking about it. Well, and then also the basis of it is that you actually enjoying it. You know, like if you don't actually enjoy what you're doing, so I, I take your points on board because, uh, you know, interview styles i've listened to a lot of podcast interview styles differ hugely the way the podcast is put forward you know lots of things that make people go oh, i'm going to listen to this or not but ultimately it must be in the enjoyment of the person actually doing the podcast and interviewing the guest and um yeah i think i think that's fundamentally anything that you do and i can see you just absolutely love what you're doing so my audience you can't actually see ray's face but he's like lit up like <laughs> a he's he's on fire here his eyes are just like he's he clearly loves what he's doing so right tell us how do you reach people outside the traditional boundaries like so if it's non-experts the underprivileged or the esoteric like yeah that's a really great question i mean that's a question for all of us actually i think right like so you know we're categorized and stereotyped in particular ways in fact right we're working we're a particular company person or we're if we're academic then we work specifically with these very narrow scopes of research right but when we step out into the real world we want to exercise that i think that's this is something that um i'm to be honest i, I think i learned about this most when i was doing this work with the refugees basically they're from uh rohingya which is close to bangladesh there were the folks who were kicked out of um, uh, Myanmar, and so they had no home. So they had to like migrate millions of them uh, across the country to uh, Bangladesh. And I got a grant uh, uh, working with them, uh, basically because like uh, my Bangladeshi friends in New York were like talking about this. Basically, I was like, "Well, can I write a grant about this? Why not?" Right. So this was funded by the Davis Peace Foundation, and I went and studied them. And I think this is, I mean, I already kind of had this in my mindset in the neuroscience, but it's kind of a good example of how we kind of do this, is, is you go to these extreme, you know, types of uh, environments almost, right? 
And then at first you try to say, okay, how do we document what they're doing? But then you realize you don't need to document what they're doing. They already are. So you take their perspective and you think, okay, what are they doing? Uh, they don't need you to feel sad for them, actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's one of the, the fundamental errors that we have, right? Like when we create a documentary or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, we want to frame it so that, you know, we want to help these people, blah, blah, blah. We don't need to help these people. These people are what they are. Um, they're happy, actually, a lot of them they adapted the situation right they have like they haven't had meat in the whole month uh you know they uh can barely uh have electricity uh you know they when i was there they were like giving me the fan because i was like kind of sweating the whole time you know it takes like six hours to get there every day so yeah. and to climb the hill but then uh they would give me the fan that you know to, to kind of like make sure i don't sweat too much right and then I realized the fan that they were giving me was like solar power in the morning so that they can have like two hours of lighting at the evening. So they were like using up their electricity quota for me sweating. You know, for example, you know, they don't have any of that, but they adapt basically. Um, and so what we basically did with that work is we uh, used the 360 camera and gave it to them. So they would take it around and like record themselves. And then I will put it into the computer and so they can see what they're creating, et cetera, et cetera. It's a much kind of more natural way to actually show the interaction. And we were actually in the frame. We, you know, with the 360 camera, you can't really remove yourself from the frame. Mm -hmm. So we were doing it that way, but it was more natural and interesting than just making a 2D documentary, you know. Um, so so that, you know, that that's the same kind of thing that I, I wanted to do with people in general is to reach out to people and if you know I mean I guess some of it is kind of natural and and maybe even slightly obvious but you know elevator pitches right like tell people about your work and in, in like two sentences um, and then if you can do that well then you don't need to prepare for your Kai presentation anymore because your Kai presentation is like well I just get up and I talk yeah, right yeah. and and I try to tell my students that you know they there's they're still getting there, but you know. <laughs> Listen, they need to practice a bit. I was telling my son today, everything you do is, you know, people that are really good at what they do. And the famous South African golf player, Gary Player, says, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And it's a lot that we apply to our lives and whatever you need to be. So if you think you're very impatient and you, you know, you need to get a little bit more, you have to practice it. And it's not just miraculously going to appear. It's actually a skill that you have to, it's a verb. You have to practice it. And um, if you need to be nicer, well, you need to practice it and you need to keep quiet when you want to say something. So oh, Shane, I, I think your students probably are learning a lot from you um, just by the sounds well, of it. I just hope that they're having fun, to be honest. And then they're creating things without any boundaries of what they should or should not do, but creating because they're just interested and curious and motivated about this particular thing. You know, I think that's, that's, I think that's what we all want for not only students, but just people around us, I guess. Right. And, and to be honest, you know, another thing I want to say is how wonderful is podcast for that, right? Because in podcasts, people will listen to you, right? They're not just looking at your image and like your visual impression, et cetera. Uh, what you're saying actually matters. They have to stop and listen. So I think 
you know, I'm just appreciative of this, of this medium and what you're doing uh, to bring us to kind of, you know, and let people to actually listen to what we're saying, you know. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And it's afforded me the fantastic and privilege of meeting you and speaking with you. Have you got any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with? And by the way, if you haven't connected with Ray already on LinkedIn, this is your call out to do so immediately. Follow him, connect with him. And uh, that would probably be the best medium for you as well to reach out to him. But uh, any closing thoughts, right? Yeah, well, thank you. So, th yeah, thanks, uh, uh, you know, again for this, like, just fun opportunity. I mean, actually, you know, just appreciative of this chat in general, you know, just like getting to know you and and what the podcast is about. Oh, and, and by the way, they can also uh, find us on Instagram. So you just look for Studio for Narrative Spaces. Uh, you can also Google that to, to find our lab website. Uh, of course, you can also just Google Ray LC and you can, that will get you to some different things. For example, our uh, the work that we do at CDU and also our, our webpage that talks about the, the, you know, the robotics work and also the arts and design work. You can come and check out one of our exhibitions, for example. So, so, and, you know, so this podcast is really, you know, helpful, you know, for us to kind of get audiences, you know, especially general audiences to, to really reach out to us and, and, and we can learn from them, you know. Um, but in terms of closing, I mean, we talked a lot about different things already, but I'm just like really excited, right? Like, to be honest, like all the stuff that we talked about, about the future and, and, you know, some of it we fear and some of it, you know, has caused changes in, in the way that we work. And, and therefore it's, you know, very, you know, kind of disorienting to us, uh, for example. But I just want to say, like, the one thing that we know from neuroscience is like, people are so good. Like, you, you don't have to worry about us. Like even older, you know, we have one paper about the way people, older people use technology uh, in China, actually. They're so good. They're better than us. You know, they learn to use WeChat to run like their whole world. Like they can pay for everything. I can't pay for stuff in China. Like, <laughs> you know, my aunt can pay for everything in China, but I cannot, right? Like, because I'm a foreigner in China, yeah. right? So, so don't worry, you know? Like human beings are really good. Like they'll figure this out, you know. Like <laughs> I love that. You know what? And, and basic, your brain has been designed to protect you. Above all, remember that that is what your brain has been designed to do. It's to protect you. Sometimes, of course, we ignore our brain's instructions and we plunder forth and do things we shouldn't. But fundamentally, that is what it's been designed for. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the quote unquote closing is basically, yeah, like we have a universe inside all of us. Mm. So because of that, we have so many neural circuits that the machine learning is kind of starting to try to speak in some similar wavelength to us. So don't be afraid of that. Those, those technologies are trying to do some small little fraction of what we do. And maybe the machine learning with the digital realm is getting good at this because, you know, it's because we, it, it's actually because we work with computers that, that we interpret these ChatGPT tools as being good. It's because we work with computers. Okay. But actually, the robotic side, it's not so good yet, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of just the pure robotic movements, you know, that's why we work with dancers and how, you know, to basically mimic that with robots and stuff. They're still not that good with this kind of more, you know, physical types of interaction. So it's going to take a while, but it's also really exciting. And, and I think, you know, let's enjoy the ride. It'll be fun. Yeah, I think so. Thank you. That's such a positive note to end this chat with. And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, I'll put some show notes in. Um, you'll send me all your Instagram and wherever people can reach you. I'll put that all in the show notes. 
to our audience, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I hope you enjoyed the chat as much as we did. We went off in all sorts of directions, but uh, I think you would have got some value out of it. And uh, please join us again next week for another chat. Thanks and take care. Mm -hmm.